there's been some studies recently that suggest that there really are higher rates of addiction in, in ADHD kids. Yeah, they like playing the games, but the kids with ADHD have a much more difficult time getting off of it, and, and it's more problematic. However, I don't think that the solution is to say, oh, let's just you know take all the electronics out of our house and let's be Luddites and uh, we will just you know not have these things available for the kids because it's not realistic, for one thing. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Are you feeling burned out as a parent? Are you worried that your family struggles will only get worse as the weather gets colder? Well, registration for the 2022 Winter ADHD Essentials Parent Groups is open. These groups are built to help reduce that burnout to help improve connection within the family, improve those relationships, and to help reduce anxiety in the ADHD home. It's all done from an ADHD-friendly perspective using ADHD-friendly strategies and skills. The groups begin Monday, January 24th and run for eight weeks on Mondays and Thursdays, meeting for one hour at 12 p.m. or 5 p.m. Eastern. Each of the eight weeks has its own theme. Parental self-care is week one. Parenting as leadership is week two. Week three, building connection. Week four, improving communication. Week five, ADHD family systems and structures. In week six, we look at managing anxiety. Week seven is my patented wall of awful model, and we wrap it all up in week eight by looking at how to ask better questions, to train executive functions, and also to get our kids to say something other than good, fine, and nothing when we ask them how their day went. The fee for the groups is $976. It's payable all at once or over four installments of $244 each. There are a handful of scholarships remaining for this session, so don't hesitate to let me know if you might need one. Go to adhdessentials.com parentgroups for more details and to register for a free information session. That link will be in the show notes. You can also email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com and I'll be sure to get back to you quickly. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maven. All of the shows on the ADHD Rewired podcast network are phenomenal, and it's my honor to be counted among them. Don't forget to join all of us for a live Q&A this coming Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. If you want to support this show, a great way to do so is by providing a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It really makes my day when I see a new one. And it helps others find the show. This episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I'm glad to have him on the team. Welcome to the show. 
In today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Randy Coleman. Dr. Coleman is the founder and president of Learning Works for Kids. He coordinates their team of psychologists, educators, and digital designers in their quest to make video games good for kids. As a licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Coleman has been working directly with kids and families for the past 30 years. And he's become a leading expert on the use of digital technologies for improving thinking skills in children. A brief note, podcast time is weird, and this episode was recorded back in November, after vaccinations became widely available, and it looked like the pandemic might be coming to a close. As a result, the few mentions of COVID are framed in the past tense as though we were going to come out of it, or already had. Chalk it up to hopeful naivete. In this episode, Dr. Coleman joins us to discuss all things screen time. We explore screen time as playtime and what makes a healthy play diet. We look at the difference between neurotypical and neurodiverse screen use, how screens can teach executive functioning skills, the various types of screen time, and why they're not equal. And we also consider what makes games good for kids, how tech companies have worked to make screen time irresistible, and the five rules of limiting screen use. All right, let's get rolling. I am a clinical psychologist. I do neuropsychological evaluations with kids, teenagers, and college students. But my passion is really more about how do kids with ADHD and learning disabilities and autism spectrum disorders use screens? How can they benefit from them? How can we help them to learn to use them effectively? And also, how can we help their parents understand what they're doing with those screens? I'd love to hear a little bit about how that became your passion before we jump into the more nitty gritty strategies and things. I would see all these kids with ADHD, with learning disabilities, their parents would bring them in to see me. You know, they would talk about all the problems these kids had. These, you know, these kids were performing poorly in school. They were struggling in a number of areas. But what they were really good at was the technology in the home. Back then, they were the ones who were, who were programming the uh, uh, VCRs. And when a little bit later, when cell phones became more popular, they were the, they were the ones who knew how to use those. And then there was the, the original Nintendo entertainment system. And the kids were really focused on these kinds of things. And I began to think to myself, man, these kids are good at this stuff. They love this stuff. Can we use this to help them to learn? Can we help them to use this stuff to kind of uh, learn some of the skills that they don't have. Can we leverage that kind of stuff? So that's really how I got involved in, in gaming. We started doing some stuff in my office. We were, we were doing groups where kids were using a game called Roller Coaster Tycoon. And there are a lot of these tycoon games out there even today. Uh, and the kids were incredibly good at problem solving. Unfortunately, sometimes their problem solving would be like, let's see if we can make a roller coaster that ends in midair and people die when they fall off of it. They, do, they were really good at that. But we get them to kind of discuss how they were thinking while they were using the game, because that's what happens in lots of games and technology. Kids really think a lot. The, the, the reason they play these games, especially the good ones, is because they're really engaged and they're thinking about stuff. So that's where I got interested in all this. I love that it comes from the perspective of play, that that's, that's your doorway in, because especially during COVID, I think we've done a better job as a society, I guess, as a culture of coming around to looking at screens as a method of play. There's still a lot of, I don't know, conflict. There's still a lot of misconceptions around screen time and play and what that looks like. 
But one, one of the things I talked to parents about a lot during COVID was if your kid was outside playing baseball or kickball with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood, you wouldn't be chasing them back home because you'd see the value of that. You'd see the value of the social time, the value of playtime. But when they're playing Minecraft, a lot of parents during COVID were like, my kid is on screens too much. I at first I had to talk to parents about it. Eventually, they started to come around and see it on their own or heard it on the news or whatever. But but that time in Minecraft, often they're playing with their friends. It's just the only way they have to play with their friends during social isolation periods is on the Internet in a Minecraft world or whatever game they might be doing Mario Kart or something. So I think it's critical that we look at some measure of screen time as this really important play option. Am I on to something here? Is, does this make sense to you? It, it makes a lot of sense to me, Brennan. It really does. I mean, this is how kids play today. I, I, I just call it digital play. It's, it's, it's a form of play. It's in, and, and it's part of what kids do. And it's not going to go away. And, and in fact, during COVID, the World Health Organization was actually encouraging parents to have their kids play video games because it kept them inside, it kept them safe. In, in a different way. So we don't usually think about playing video games as a, as a tool for safety, but in, 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 during COVID, it was, it was also really their opportunity to communicate with each other. To, you know, I mean, and, 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 I, and I think that one of the things that did happen is parents began to realize that screen time and communication and social, socialization all could go together. I think prior to that, many of the parents that I would encounter would think that, oh, my kid's on their phone, FaceTiming or communicating with their friends like this. Well, during COVID, guess what we were all doing? We were Zooming with our friends or, or our family. We were on screens doing that. And we said, hey, this isn't so bad. It's not quite as good as the real thing. And I think that is one of the things that we need to look at when we talk about screen time is that there's other forms of play. Okay, And the problem with screen time is that it is so alluring that it's difficult sometimes for people to get, engage in other types of play. And that's even more difficult, if you will, for kids with ADHD. As a personal experience, throughout COVID, I ran an online Dungeons and Dragons game for my kids and four of their friends. I have identical twin sons. So it's me and a bunch of sixth graders, now they're seventh graders, playing D&D over Zoom. And then everybody got vaccinated. And so over the summer, the kids came to my house and we played D&D. And it's a different experience. They interacted differently in a physical space. Even like the first day they all hung out together, they were like, this is weird. It's weird to be in the same building and place and houses together. And what do we do and how do we play? And so I, I agree with you. The in-person stuff matters. It's important. Right. But we also kind of I'm glad that we've normalized the screen piece, playing over Zoom, playing over whatever server might exist for a video game. I think that's important, too. But I concur that we need to have a balance. And I did note that when you started your story about how you got to screen time, you work primarily with neurodiverse kids. So autism, ADHD. How does screen time differ for neurodiverse kids than it does for neurotypicals? Well, that's a really good question. Before I, before I answer that, I did want to just point out that I didn't realize you were such a geek. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wicked bad. My audience knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. You might have mentioned to me you were interested in Dungeons and Dragons when we talked before, but I didn't know quite how geeky you were. So uh, thanks for sharing. Yeah, sure thing. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it is different. 
and and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to get too researchy, but there's some some really good research back from around 2012, 2013 by a woman by the name of Micah Masaryk, who looked at kids with ADHD and kids with autism spectrum disorders and found that they played a little bit differently. They sometimes got really involved with characters. For example, the kids with, with autism spectrum disorders, she suggested that they not play games like Pokemon because they can get overly involved in specific characters. And that sometimes they might share an interest, play the same amount with their peers, be able to talk with their peers about this, which, by the way, is one of the real assets of playing video games for kids on the spectrum, at least, which is it gives them an opportunity to share an interest with others. If they love Minecraft, well, guess what? Lots of neurotypical kids love Minecraft as well. If they love playing Pokemon, same thing. What they found, though, is that sometimes these kids had very specific interests. There'd be a particular character, a particular sort of thing that they were doing. And sometimes that's what they would want to share. We also know kids with ADHD struggle with transitions. We know that there's higher rates of addiction in people with ADHD, not, not you know, in people, you know, and in kids. One of the pleas that parents of kids with ADHD have shared with me a number of times is how do I kind of keep my kids off screens because that's all they want to do. One of the things I've done is I've done, I don't know, 10 webinars for Attitude Magazine, primarily about the benefits of video games. So we've done a couple of them just about Minecraft. We've done a, a couple of them about uh, other types of, of, of games that kids really like to, to play and how, how we can use these games to, to improve executive functioning skills. So I talked for 25, 35 minutes. At the end of that, there's a list of questions. Parents are always not saying, well, how can I use this game? Well, what can I do with this? Instead, they're saying, how do I set limits? My, this is what's going on with my kid. My kid gets angry and irritable when they have to get off the game. Well, you know, and it's really not that different from what happens when kids with ADHD are in school, for example, sometimes, and they're doing an art project and they really like doing it. And now they got to go do something else that's less desirable. There's a real difference in terms of that. There's been some studies recently that suggest that there really are higher rates of addiction in, in ADHD kids than, than, than there are. There's more problematic play. So when they compare a group of kids with ADHD to a neurotypical group of kids, they'll find that, yeah, they like playing the games, but the kids with ADHD have a much more difficult time getting off of it, and, and it's more problematic. It's a real issue. However, I don't think that the solution is to say, oh, let's just you know, take all the electronics out of our house and let's be Luddites and uh, we will just you know, not have these things available for the kids because it's not realistic for one thing, especially with school these days, nor is it necessarily good for these kids because they are going to learn, they, they, they're going to need to learn how to monitor this stuff and, and work on, a, on their own and have some autonomy around this. You and I had been talking about this earlier. It's like, if they don't learn that stuff, Oof, they're going to be in big trouble when they get out of the house. One of the things I say to parents when it comes to them asking me, how do I get my kid off screens? Is I say to them, I'm like, you have to give them a better option. Like if you don't want your kid on the screen all day, you've got to give them a better option. So come up with stuff to do with your kids. If your interactions with your kids are primarily do your homework, what do you want for dinner and arguing about screens? You don't have the kind of connection that you need to have. We've got to be able to talk to our kids about what's going on with their day in a way that is comforting and supportive. We've got to be able to have experiences with our kids that are shared family experiences that are not screen time. Go find a place to hike 
in your town or the county you live in. I don't know. Go camping, play some board games, play video games with your kids so that there's a clearer end to that game, right? Like we're going to play video games until five o'clock and then we're eating dinner and maybe have your kids cook dinner with you. Engage them in activities that are not screen driven, which doesn't mean they don't involve a screen. I recently had my kids help me put a grill together. We had a screen out watching videos about how to put the grill together, but it wasn't this massive suck into the screen that happened. We were just using the screen as a tool, which is important. That's part of the boundary stuff you're talking about. We have to be able to set a boundary where a screen is a tool versus a screen is entertainment. And how do we tell the difference? And how do we keep that line from getting blurred? So you're not watching a video on how to build the grill. And then all of a sudden you're watching videos about parkour or Minecraft or whatever the case may be. Well, one of the things I think you're pointing out, which is really important to recognize is that not all screen time is equal. Not all screen time is alike. It, it's, it can be very different. I mean, there's recreational screen time, there's discretionary screen time. Uh, we can think about there being passive versus active screen time. So one thing I would note is that the pass, the more passive the screen time is, the more likely we're going to see some problems with that. So there's a lot of evidence that talks about passive television watching, for example, as being really detrimental to kids. Even as young as two and three years old in terms of their language development, there's a TV on in the background all the time. This is not a good thing for kids. So, you know, looking at it like that, there's work screen time, there's school screen time, and then there's, you know, then you have to look at the content. There's violence. You know, what's that like for kids with ADHD who may have, you know, more difficulties with self-regulation? But a lot of screen time these days is very social. It's really kind of how you socialize with, with your peers. So we have to look at the quality of the, of, of the kinds of games that kids are playing. Some games are just so much better than others if we're going to give them video games to play. And, you know, parents are always asking, well, what are the games to play? So we, you know, we've looked at that. And when I say we, it's, it's my team at learningworksforkids.com. I've got a group of uh, graduate and undergraduate students and a couple of, a couple of adults like me although they're all gamers, not, not me. <laughs> so, and we, you know, so we review lots of games and we, and we've created all kinds of cool things where we do live classes using games to teach executive functioning skills. We uh, have these self-guided classes on our thinkific.com website for learning works and that we teach kids how to take a game like Minecraft and use a skill like planning and they do a project and they do a little challenging quiz and they kind of do that kind of stuff. So there's really high quality games. Minecraft, Roblox is a really great game for kids. These games require the kids to think and to explore and to be creative. A lot of the Mario games can be fun. Maybe not, they, I don't think they have as much meat in them, if you will. We, lo we love Animal Crossing. That's a, that's a game that a lot of the kids love playing. And, and it really also involves a lot of projects that kids need to do and a lot of executive skills that they, that they need to do. And that's, that's actually kind of going into a little bit of a different direction, but part of you know, when we think about, well, what makes games good for kids? Part of I be, how I began thinking about this, and this is back in the probably the early 2000s as well, I began asking that question, how can we leverage these games? How can we make these games good for kids? So while again, I'm not a gamer, you know, I play enough to, to know something, but I also have kids play games and show me games. And I began to realize that the best games are those games in which kids are using a number of executive functioning skills. If you look at any complex game, even the, some of the games I don't like, like Call of Duty, for example, those kinds of, you know, those kinds of first-person shooters, you're using the skill of planning. Planning is, is a primary tool that, that kids use in all these kinds of games. 
they need to organize things. They need to like gather different kinds of materials if they want more health or more life, so different kinds of things. They need to use working memory to remember what's happened before in the past. They clearly need to use flexibility. Kids, kids need to be really flexible in games. One of the things that I think parents can do is talk to them about how did you get through that game uh, when you made a mistake? I mean, a lot of kids with ADHD, they make a mistake on their math. They give up. They don't want to do anything. The games require persistence. Can we help these kids recognize that you're persistent here? You're kind of sticking with something. You overcame obstacles. You did all that kind of stuff. These kind of executive skills are important in games. Now, I'd love to tell you that just play, playing the games themselves is enough to make these kids have all these executive skills and they'll be experts at it. Well, again, I would say, why are you in business? Why am I in business? We're working, working with all these families where that's not exactly happening. So you have to really work to make that happen. But you could use it as a teaching tool. And that's sort of what, you know, that, that's been my passion. That's what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to do that. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. I did speak in a geeky stuff. As we are doing this interview, the, the 2021 ADHD conference is going on, right? Last year, I presented at the conference and my workshop was using Dungeons and Dragons to support executive function and social emotional skills. So I'm with you. Like that's, that's the beauty of games, right? That's the beauty of, of D&D, which is kind of more of a board game, role-playing game, as well as Minecraft and video games. They do a lot more than just entertain. So is the concern that we have around screen time, is it like appropriate? Is it too loud? Is it too soft? Where's that coming from? And and I, I want to kind of split this hair a little bit because there's like the cultural concern, right? There's sort of the good morning America level of concern. And then there's individual parent concerns. And it's not the same thing, right? So often, often our first anxious thoughts are coming from the culture that we live in. And then the next one is kind of our perspective. So I don't want to just blanket say everybody listening to this podcast is super worried or is not worried at all, but kind of as our baseline sort of good morning, America, the screaming headlines of kids have too much screen time and they're going to grow up to live in their mom's basement. Is that appropriate? Is it not appropriate? Where are we? Where are we with that? It is appropriate on, on some levels. Uh, I'm not sure if you if you've heard of this uh, book called Irresistible by a guy by the name of Adam Alter. He wrote a book about two years ago about how the technology companies have done things to make screen time essentially irresistible, not just to kids or kids with ADHD, but to all of us. And, and he talks about that they build certain things into their games. They build in like, and not just games, but technology, variable feedback. So you don't always get something. So you know, for example, on social media. You put something up, you get responses. What do people say? So, and it's variable. It's and just like if you go to a casino, it's like if you play the slot machines, it's a variable feedback. That's what keeps people there. So they build that kind of thing in. They build in portability. So 75% of people have their cell phones within arm's reach at all times. So that portability makes it so that it's always there. And of course, it's always buzzing and, and all these things. I shut mine off today, but it's usually buzzing with all kinds of things. There's no stopping cues. You don't know when to stop. You can just keep going. You can, you can play Minecraft forever. Cliffhangers. I mean, uh, my, my wife, in I think the span of three days, just watched this murder mystery with Steve Martin in it. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's, been down, she's been downstairs in our basement where we have the exercise equipment and the TV. She's been down there for hours. She's getting in great shape. 
because she wanted it. She, you know, she just, I think she watched two, two, two seasons of 10 episodes over the last three or four days. I mean, something like that, but because, you know, five seconds after one show's over, guess what? The next one's up. And you don't even have to do anything to make it start. It's just right. auto plays and up comes the next one. There's no obvious choice point to get out of that. Exactly. Exactly. And for kids, one of the things that goes on is that, you know, Alta talks about something called artificial goals so that you set a goal. So when kids are playing Minecraft, for example, you could Minecraft as, as, as a sandbox game, where in other words, you're going out there and you're just doing things in an online world and you can do anything you want. But the kids set goals for themselves that are artificial in terms of what they want to do. So the parents tell them, come over here, you know, put away the game. I can't until I do this. I can't. I've got to finish this. And so we set those kinds of goals or people, you know, set goals on their on their watches for 10,000 steps or whatever. But all those things make it really difficult for us to put screens away. Brendan, I think you're a very smart man. I think I'm a pretty smart guy. Those people who are involved with Amazon, who keep us buying things and uh, with Apple <laughs> and Facebook, they're smarter than we are. They know how to keep us there because that's making them money. And one of the things that I try to communicate to kids who are struggling with this stuff is to have them recognize that kind of stuff, to recognize that all these technologies are being designed to keep them. In fact, I just want to, uh, my, my newest book, called the, it's called The Gaming Overload Workbook. It's directed to teenagers. And basically it says to teenagers, you know what? Video games, technology, it's fine, but don't let it overwhelm you. you there's other things in life. And I think that we have to approach kids in that way. So back to your original question is, are we making too much of it? Well, I don't know that we're making too much of it, but I think that what we want to do is be realistic with it. We want to be realistic when we're talking to kids and teenagers about this. It's like, you know what? We know that screens are part of your life. We know they're an important part of your life, but there are other things there as well. I think that if we can start from that premise that the screens themselves, because of the nature of what's on them and who's you know, creating the technology behind that, are really engaging that we sort of need to, I don't know if I want to say fight that, but be super aware of that as, as, as we're using them. One of the things that I've noticed with my kids, I think I'm kind of ahead of the game a little bit. And some of that is the nature of what I do, right? So I kind of had some knowledge when they were little. And another piece of that is this new technology is still new technology when you think about it sort of across generations and the lifespan and stuff. So I've noticed that as far as clients go, often it's kids a couple of years. My guys are 12. So kids, especially like 15 and up. So a couple of years older than my kids and some kids around my age. That's where I seem to be getting the most screen time issues from my clients and the parents that I work with. Younger than that, not as much. It's still there, but not as heavy. And some of that, yeah, is age and like access to screens. I recognize that. But some of it, too, I think, is that parents with younger kids are more aware of the fact that this could be a problem than parents with older kids, because we were Facebook was fresh. If you've got an 18 year old kid like we hadn't figured out Facebook yet when your kid was 12, like it was even six years ago, it wasn't what it is now. And, and neither were apps and games and in app purchases and all this kind of stuff. So I, one thing that gives me hope is parents are learning about what does screen time do? What is the influence of technology? What is the role of the neuroscience playing in the ads and stuff that exists within this technology? And it gives me hope that like kind of the younger the kids are, it seems like the more the parents have a bit of a handle on it, which makes me happy. 
one of the ways I've helped my kids get a handle on it, I think, I mean, time will tell, but since they were little, a question that I often ask them when they're doing stuff is I say, how much more time do you need? I see that you're doing something. How much more time do you need before I can come and interrupt you or pull you out of that or whatever? And that question does a whole lot of executive functioning work in our family. One, it forces them to think about time. It also forces them to think about what they're doing and how much time they might need. It also reinforces the idea that this thing is going to end and it's okay that it's going to end, right? It also shows them that I'm going to treat them with respect and dignity and that it's not just because I need you. Suddenly you have to drop everything and come talk to me. It's like, no, no, no. You, you transition out of what you're doing and then we'll hang out and talk and we can do stuff. So it's teaching. Sometimes it's teaching me patience. Sometimes it's teaching them patience. But it's sort of supporting that I'm, I respect them and, and I'm going to treat them with dignity. And that means that the times when I don't, when I'm like, all right, get over here right now, they know that that's a fluke, right? And there's probably a good reason for it. And sometimes there isn't. Sometimes I'm just being impulsive and ADHD and maybe grumpy. But usually it's because like we need to have this conversation right now and then I'm going to send you right back to do whatever you need to do. But that question, my understanding of it, my impression of it and living with these kids every day is it's changed the way they relate to their technology because they've had to oftentimes think about how much longer am I going to be in this and do this? They don't seem to get as submerged and as embraced by the YouTube video, the video game, the whatever, because they might have to come out of it and it's not going to be a fight. They're not trying to battle to stay in it. They're just transitioning out gently because I'm like, all right, cool. Five minutes. We're good. Does, does that make sense? Is this like ringing true for you in any way? Yeah, actually, it really rings true to me in good part, because what you're doing is one of the things I think a lot of parents don't do, which is to be involved in their kids gameplay. I mean, not only do you play Dungeons and Dragons with them, but, but beyond that, you're, you're actually involved in understanding of that. I mean, let's go back to this concept of play equals learning. When I was growing up a long time ago, before there were video games and we had three, three stations on the black and white TV and all those kinds of things, I learned to play board games with my grandmother. She would teach me things. You know, I'd go out and play baseball and my father would play baseball with me to go to the game. I learned from that. My parents knew what I was doing. They played with me with my, you know, my kids when they were growing up. You know, I coached their teams. We did things together in, in, in that respect. We're involved. So we knew the new things and we use those games as opportunities for teaching. The kids came home, they lost the game. We talked about being frustrated and what they could do about that. If we were playing Monopoly and they want to spend all their money on utilities, we might tell them that's not such a great idea. You might want to save your money for Boardwalk and Park Place or, you know, that kind of thing. But we use, but we did that. So you're engaged with them. And that's what's happened, I think. And I, and I wonder, actually, I'm gonna go, I want to go back to what you were saying before about the younger parents versus the older parents. I'm wondering if we're seeing a generational shift now so that parents of kids, of younger kids, are generally people who grew up in, in, in the gaming age. They're, they're digital natives, if you will, as opposed to digital immigrants. And that digital natives have a better sense of what can you learn from video games or technology, but also what are the dangers and risks of that, so that they recognize both of those kinds of things. And I'm hopeful that they'll have a more realistic view of this as well, so that they'll be more engaged, they'll be more up to play the games with the kids, they'll be more up to say, you know what, you got to do other things too, because I spent, you know, some days staying up till two or three in the morning and couldn't get up for school 
when I was in high school playing video games, and I don't want that for you. I know, I know that that happens. So I'm going to be more engaged and more involved, more likely to recognize that kind of stuff. So, so that does give me hope to do that. I love your question, by the way, because I think that you know, to your kids around, you know, how much more time do you need? It's I, like I, like you were saying, it's respectful to the kids around that stuff, but it's also like it's also a parent. I'm saying to you, okay, guys, you know, you got a limit to how much time you got, but. I, I know you. this is important to you. I mean, some parents are going to say, well, that wouldn't work with my kids. I'm sure that you've heard that. Sure, yeah. And, and that's true. Uh, that's absolutely true. Although I think if you start early, you know, and you, and you recognize these things, the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be in terms of what your kids do and, and, and having some control of that and having the kids have some self-control as well. I've certainly heard parents that are like, that's not going to work, work with my kid. And I'm like, uh, it will. Like, there's no scenario where this won't work with your kid on a long enough timeline. It might not work with your kid in the first two months, probably will cause arguments in the first two months. Absolutely. But three months, four months, six months, a year later, it'll work. As long as you're consistent, which I recognize is not easy with ADHD. Once we start getting a new pattern, that new pattern is going to be resisted and it's going to make things worse. But if we can stick with it anyway, eventually the new pattern will become the normal pattern and the arguments will decrease and we'll get more used to it. One of the things that happens when I ask my kids how much more time you need is it's taught them judgment. If they're on a YouTube video and they look at it and they're like three minutes, they know that's cool, right? They're like, oh, it's like three minutes, dad. I'm like, awesome. If it's seven, they're like, uh, it's seven minutes. And then I have to make the call, right? They know that's a bit much, right? Anything over five. Anything between five and 10, and they're like, and everything over 10, they're like, no, we have like 12 minutes, dad. Can we just get to this point and we'll stop? Or they just immediately drop it and then come talk to me and then we go back in. And the same is true for video games. It's forcing them to make a judgment call around about where am I in this game relative to where I would need to be to pause it or stop it or whatever. Can I do that? And if it doesn't, if it's not, good if it's not going to work they just stop then they don't battle about it they're just like okay cool and off they come and some of that is when they were really little i still do it every now and then but not as much when they're really little anything they were doing that was a video game a tv show they didn't do youtube at this age i would just say all right pause that nonsense and let's come over here because i wanted to instill into them that that stuff is less important than the things that i'm bringing up to you because it is, right? It's entertainment. Entertainment is less important than a meaningful conversation with another human being. So I use that word on purpose and it sort of is in there with them now. Is there anywhere you want to go that we haven't gone? Well, can I take up on that last point that you made? Because yeah, sure. probably of all the work that I've done or all the concepts I've come up with. I've come up with a lot. I have a lot of fun kind of writing. I, I, you know, I write for psychology today and I've written books and zillions of blog posts or whatever. But probably the thing I'm proudest of is something that I call a play diet. It's my solution. And, and I'm putting quotation marks. I guess they call them air quotes these days around that because it's really not the solution to all these things. But I think it's a really good way to think about this. And it fits with sort of what you're saying, which is in today's world, a healthy play diet involves some degree of digital play, of playing with video games, of screens, and things like that. Just a part of a healthy play diet, but that's not enough. Just like a food diet, you know, you were supposed to have protein and fruits and vegetables and all these kinds of things. When we originally kind of came up with the idea of the play diet, 
we had the, the play diet pyramid, like, but no, there's no such thing as the food pyramid anymore. Now we have the food plate. So now we have the, the play diet is on, a, is on a plate now. But a play diet and a healthy play diet consists of social play, physical play, creative play, unstructured play, and digital play. And it varies for each kid as to what's healthy. Personally, I think that the social and physical play need to be the most prominent parts. I sometimes talk about something that I call whole play, uh, like whole grains, where we combine a couple of those things. So a lot of times social and digital play can go together. I mean, you're playing Minecraft with your friends. That can be social as well as uh, physical play and social play can be going to the gym with your friends. So you can kind of do those kinds of things. But you know, I think that, that parents need to do that. And, and they also need to do sort of what you were saying before. They need to make it accessible. They need to make it more attractive. It's not easy for parents to promote a healthy play diet in their kids. The first thing, of course, they need to do, by the way, is they need to model a healthy play diet for their kids. Forgetting about anything else, if you're spending an average of nine hours and 22 minutes, I believe, which is the typical adult, according to Common Sense Media, uh, how much time they spend on screens. It's a crazy amount of time. Like per day, per week? No, per day, per day. I'm below that. <laughs> I think I'm at like seven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and some, and, and I've actually seen some stuff from, um, I'm blocking on the name, the, the, the guys who do uh, the TV ratings to know how much TV we're watching. I want to say Kiefer, but it's not. Uh, so anyway, they, you know, th that they actually talk about there being like 10 hours a day of adult screen time. So, so adults and some of that obviously is, is, is work related. And they also talk about screen time being, uh, or electronic time being like listening to music and things like that as well. So it's not as bad as it sounds, but you're going to model that first. You got to model having other interests. You know, if a parent doesn't do that, if a parent doesn't read or garden or exercise or knit or cook, whatever it is, if they don't show other kinds of things, kids are not going to do that. But you also have to insist on it and it costs money. So sometimes you're going to have to drive the kids to the, to the baseball field or you're going to have to spend money going uh, to the gym with them or taking them out uh, you know, to whatever, a restaurant, but you, you got, you, you, it, it costs money to do that kind of stuff. It costs money to make that stuff happen. And it takes energy and time to do that. And a lot of times parents are so busy that they don't do that. So, so I think that's the thing. Now, I also have I, I, what I would call my sort of five rules, if you will, of limiting screen time. First one is, is having that healthy play diet. The second one is kind of recognizing that you need to individualize this to each kid. You know, you know one, one kid may be more introverted and, is, and it's better for them to spend a little bit of time maybe online with their friends because they're more comfortable seeing their friends that way than seeing them face to face. So, you know, you have to look at that kind of stuff. A third rule is that we want to encourage autonomy, as you were saying, kind of teaching the kids to kind of set their own limits on that, to be able to do some of that stuff on their own. A fourth one is, is really fostering other areas of interest than tech use. So, so kind of making that happen. So those are those after school lessons or being on the sports teams or just sort of making those things happen. These are expectations in our house. You know, every day uh, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you do this and you practice your violin or whatever that is. But there's other kinds of things. So we kind of foster those interests, but expect them. And the last one is an interesting one, which is to not punish yourself. So you were asking maybe one of your first questions here was, well, are we really making too much of this? Are we really overdoing it? Well, my answer to that would probably be, no, we, I think we really do need to pay attention to this. This is important. And it's really important for some kids with ADHD and autism spectrum disorders. But at the same time, I think parents shouldn't punish themselves. I mean, if we look at screen time as a villain, as some awful sort of thing, 
first of all, we're probably not doing our kids any good because we're probably keeping away from their friends and keeping away from technology skills that they need. But the other thing is sometimes they're happy doing that. And, 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 and of course, for kids with ADHD, sometimes they're really happy doing that because it's impacting the dopamine in their brain. And they're also successful at something and they're engaged and people love to be attentive and focused. And one of the things that, you know, that kids that I see who have ADHD is that they feel really good when they're in that flow and when they're focused and stuff like that. So we don't want to take that away from them. But at the same time, for the parents, sometimes we don't want to take it away from them because if it keeps the kids peaceful, maybe they can have a little peace too. And if the kid comes out of it, like if, if your kid typically comes out of a video game and they're all amped up and frustrated or angry or argumentative or whatever, maybe just let that ride and let them get past that and then see how they react. Because maybe we don't need to punish them for the way they're coming out of it because maybe they know that it wasn't that good and they're punishing themselves and we're just making it worse when we add our punishment to that so that the next time they come out, it's that much harder because they're expecting to get punished. I think broadly speaking that the don't punish yourself and maybe don't punish your kid is a, is really good advice, not just for screen time. And my listeners are probably like, this sounds like a Brendan approach to life. I'm not a big fan of punishment. I don't think it works. Um, <laughs> but that said, just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah. I, mean, I think the thing that got me involved with this is the one that I want to leave with, which was how can we leverage or make game and screen time you know, helpful for kids and specifically helpful for kids with ADHD and you know, who have problems with executive functioning issues? And, and, and I think there are lots of ways to do that. I think we need to be able to learn a little bit more about how to use those technologies. For example, I'm a big advocate of teaching kids with ADHD who have writing issues how to dictate appropriately, not just to grab a phone and talk into it but how to speak in sentences. I think it will reduce the amount of kids who quit high school because they can't write, who are struggling, who are, who are fighting with their parents, if we can teach them some skills. So using apps like that to help with that. Using video games in the way that we use them at Learning Works for Kids, where we help kids to, we call it detect, reflect, connect, that, that they can identify skills they use in the game. They can think about that, utilize metacognitive process, and then sort of connected to things in the real world that I think we can do a much better job using the things that kids love, that they're attentive to, that they're focused with, that they're persistent with, which happens to be games and technology, to teach them skills. I think that we need to kind of become more aware of how to do that kind of thing. And we're getting there, but we're getting there slowly because I think we're fighting some of the prejudice, not prejudice, that's probably the wrong word, but we're fighting these kind of thoughts that these things are bad for kids. TV was bad for kids. It was going to ruin their eyes. Books were bad for kids because it was taken away from the farms. I mean, we, we can look at all those kinds of things. And, you know, too much of any of those kinds of things. If all you do is sit around and read, well, you're going to be fat and, you know, maybe you'll be smart, but you'll be, you, you won't have any. You, so any of these kinds of things, too much of can be a problem. So I think if we can really start to think about how do we use these games and technologies to help kids rather than looking at them as a hindrance. I think that we have a lot, of, a lot of room to move in that and we can help these kids a lot with these technologies. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.